Some of the most profound words in the Bible are the three words, God is love. Rarely in Scripture do you find such a summary statement about the character of God. God is so immense that there is a sense in which He is beyond description. He is infinite, we are finite. Yet, 1 John 4, 8, says God is love. His love is infinite. His love is indescribable. His love is immeasurable. That verse doesn't merely say that God loves. It says God is love. That is His character. That is His nature. Now, many people know that profound three-word phrase, God is love. However, not nearly as many people know another profound three-word phrase that is very similar. In fact, it begins the same way. It begins, God is, and the next word also begins with an L. It is the phrase, God is light. That phrase occurs in the same New Testament letter as the phrase, God is love, and it even occurs before the phrase, God is love. God is love is found in 1 John 4, and God is light is found in 1 John 1. Let's turn to that chapter together, please. Over near the end of the New Testament is the little epistle titled 1 John Find the first chapter and follow along as I read the ten verses of this brief chapter. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We begin our consideration of this marvelous epistle by looking at the prologue consisting of verses 1 through 4. You'll remember that John did not give a traditional greeting or introduction to this letter. He was so excited about his subject matter that he simply launched into the letter by saying, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
John's letter then is about the message of the gospel of life that is centered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it is, he begins the letter after the prologue with a statement about the character of God in verse 5. He says in verse 5, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is really the first verse of the letter proper. Verses 1 through 4 form a prologue, and then John opens his letter with this statement. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Why does John open the letter in this way? Here's the answer. Because if you are going to write a letter to tell people how to have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, it is essential to begin with the fact that God is holy. That is the starting point. Men and women cannot appreciate the gospel until they come to understand that God is holy and we are damned because of our sinfulness. The word gospel means good news. The Greek word euangelion, translated gospel, literally means good news. But people do not appreciate the good news until they first understand the bad news. The bad news is that we justly, easily deserve the lake of fire because God is holy and we are not. The good news is that God has made a way for us to escape the judgment we justly deserve. But again I say, people do not appreciate the good news until they first understand the bad news. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you read in the paper that someone has discovered a cure or come up with a cure for an extremely rare blood disease that is 100% fatal to those who come down with the disease. Only 237 people have ever come down with this blood disease, but every one of them died within a matter of days. If you read an article stating that someone has discovered a cure, you might find it somewhat interesting. However, if you had the blood disease, that would be the most important news in the world to you. Beloved, that's the way it is with the gospel. The gospel is the good news of forgiveness and salvation, but frankly, most people don't see it as that big of a deal. You know why? Because they don't really understand how holy God is and how much they really deserve His righteous wrath. So the starting point for our message is the fact that God is light. That is a way of saying that God is holy. He is true. He is pure. He is righteous. This is the quintessential aspect of the character of God. God is holy. That means He is absolutely separate and distinct from all His creatures and from sin. Now the key thought or the key idea is separation or uniqueness. God is distinct. God is different. God is unique. God is separate. This is the primary attribute of God. 
It extends to all his other attributes. For example, God's righteousness is different than ours. We can be righteous in life. In fact, we're commanded as believers to live righteous lives. We can be righteous, but God's righteousness is different than ours. His love is different than ours. We are commanded to love, to love one another. And we can live a life of love, but God's love is different than ours. His patience is different than ours. We are commanded to be patient, but God's patience is different than ours. God is distinct and unique, so his primary attribute is holiness. This is why the angels in heaven do not cry out before the throne, love, 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 as important as that is. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. They don't say mighty, 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 or loving, 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 or gracious, gracious, gracious. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside thee. God is holy. Nothing is like God. No one is like God. God does not merely conform to a standard. He is the standard. A realization of God's holiness should create a sense of impurity, unworthiness, creatureliness, and humility within our souls. In fact, I personally believe that when you really get a grasp of the holiness of God, it creates within your heart an overwhelming sense of sinfulness. And if you don't have that overwhelming sense of sinfulness, then you don't really grasp the holiness of God. How can I say that? Well, when Isaiah saw God's holiness, he was overwhelmed with his lack of holiness. You remember what he said? And this was a prophet of God, God's spokesman, God's mouthpiece. And he said, woe is me, I am undone. I'm falling apart. When Job realized God's holiness, he said, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's stated by a man who at the beginning of the book says there was none like Job in all the land, an upright man who feared God and shunned evil. A godly man, and yet he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Peter on one occasion realized the holiness of Christ as Jesus was standing there in Peter's boat, Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Get away from me. I can't stand this contrast between your holiness and my lack of holiness. God is absolutely separate and distinct from all his creatures and from sin. That's what it means when we say God is holy. So what are the practical ramifications of the holiness of God? First of all, it means that no one is accepted in his presence without the same perfect holiness. And that's impossible for us. So we're in in an impossible dilemma. The only solution is the one provided by God himself as he made him, referring to God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our sin and in exchange he offers his righteousness, his holiness to those who will repent of sin and receive him as Lord and Savior. 
without the holiness of Christ on our record, mark this, without the holiness of Christ on our spiritual bank account, we cannot face God. We cannot stand before God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. If you are trusting in your own merit, if you are trusting in your own goodness, your own works, you are tragically mistaken. Only the perfect holiness of Jesus Christ is sufficient. A second ramification of the holiness of God is that once we receive Christ, we too are called to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 reminds us of that responsibility. It says, as he who has called you is holy, so you also be holy in every manner of life, in all your conduct. God makes us holy positionally at the moment we receive Christ. Then he calls us to live holy in our practice. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, Let everyone who names the name of Christ... Now that probably applies to most people here this morning. Most people here would claim to be a Christian. Not everyone, maybe, but most gathered here would say, I know Christ. I, I name the name of Christ. Well, here's what the verse says. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're going to name the name, then live the life because you represent a holy God. Through the years, one of the ways I have sought to cement the truth of God's holiness in my own heart and mind is to regularly call Him Holy Father when I pray. Years ago, I picked up on this when I was studying John 17. And notice, that's the way Jesus addressed the Father in John 17, 11. He said, Holy Father, and went on with his prayer. God is holy. And that is what John has in mind with this statement here in verse 5. God is light. I want you to notice that John prefaces that statement with this comment. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. That's, an, that's a very important statement. In other words, John didn't make this up. He didn't decide on his own that this would be a good thing to stay, state at the beginning of his letter. What he is saying here in verse 5 is this. The Lord Jesus Christ himself gave this message to John. John is saying, this is the message that we heard from him, Jesus, namely that God, and declare to you that God is light. This is what we heard Jesus say. This is what we heard Jesus teach. This is what we heard Jesus assert. The Lord Jesus gave this message to John. It's interesting to note, in light of this statement, that none of the gospel writers recorded this saying of Jesus. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You will never find Jesus saying, God is light. We know that John did record Jesus saying, God is spirit in John 4, 24. But none of the gospel writers recorded this saying, God is light. We know that there are many things Jesus taught, many things that Jesus said that were not recorded in the gospels. For example, we know from Acts 20 that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. But that statement is not recorded in any of the Gospels. It's not in Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John. If Paul had not quoted it in Acts 20, we would have never known Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Technically, such a statement is called an agrapha, 
which means it was a statement not written in the Gospels. This statement, God is light, falls into that category. Even though none of the Gospel writers record Jesus making this statement, this truth stood out to John as one of the most fundamental emphases of Jesus' ministry. God is light. When John thought back to the to the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, he began his letter by saying, this is what I heard. This is what was emphasized. This is what was repeated. This is the starting point. This is the foundation. God is light. When the Bible uses the terms light and darkness in a symbolic way, we need to understand that there are two aspects to it. There is an intellectual side to light and darkness, and there is a moral side to light and darkness. Intellectually, light refers to truth. Morally, light refers to holiness. So, when the Bible talks about walking in the light, it means to know the truth and to live righteously. The reverse is true with darkness. Intellectually, darkness refers to ignorance. Morally, darkness refers to ungodliness. So when the Bible talks about people walking in darkness, it means that they are ignorant of the truth and or are living an ungodly life. It's important to understand those distinctions because sometimes when the Bible speaks of light, metaphorically, it's referring to intellectual knowledge of the truth. Other times it's referring to righteousness or holiness. The reverse is true as well. When the Bible talks about darkness, metaphorically or symbolically, sometimes it is referring to a condition of ignorance of the truth, and at other times it's talking about sinful deeds of darkness. So to summarize this point, light and darkness are contrasts of intellectual truth and moral behavior or character. The relationship between the two goes like this. Men and women who don't know God or don't know the truth of God are said to be in darkness, and as a result, they practice evil deeds of darkness. Those who do know God and His truth are in the light, and that in turn results in a holy life, or it should result in a holy life. So all of this is extremely important background to this text before us because John's opening statement in the letter proper is this. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is holy, God is perfect, God is flawless, and everything He does is right. For John, the apostle of love, mind you, for John, this is the starting point for everything. The pristine holiness of God is the foundation and the fundamental truth. And consider this startling fact. John made this statement here in verse 5, right after saying in verse 4 that he is writing to produce fullness of joy. Look at that connection. We might have assumed that if John wanted to encourage joy, he would begin with a reminder of the love of God or the mercy of God or the graciousness of God. Yet that's not how he began. He began with the correct foundation which is the holiness of God. It may sound strange for you to hear this, but the starting point for fullness of joy is not the love of God. That's what so many people think today 
and even many Christians. But that's not really the starting point. The starting point for fullness of joy is the holiness of God. There are many Christians who believe strongly in the love of God. In fact, that's all they emphasize in their theology and in their life. God is love. God is love. And they they don't want to think about His holiness or His righteousness or His justice. They only want to think about the love of God, but they do not possess fullness of joy. Now, I'm not saying, hear this, I'm not saying that if you build your understanding of God from the starting point of the holiness of God, then you will automatically have fullness of joy. No, not automatically. But if you don't begin there, then you make it highly unlikely that you will ever have lasting fullness of joy. John knew exactly what he was doing by connecting these two thoughts together. In verse 4, fullness of joy. In verse 5, God is light. Let me take this a step further. Are you with me? If your mind wandered, tune back in. This is important. If the holiness of God is the foundation and anchor of our understanding of God, it protects us, as Lloyd-Jones put it, quote, from the terrible danger of tending to blame God and to criticize Him in times of trouble and in times of need. And that is one of our greatest dangers, to misunderstand God, to argue and to question, why does God do this? Did I deserve this? But if I start with the holiness of God, I will never speak like that. I know at once that whatever may be happening to me is not the result of anything unworthy in God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So whatever may be happening to me is not in any way due to any imperfections in God. It silences me. I put my hand upon my mouth, and I prevent myself from speaking foolishly and whiningly." End quote. That is a great insight, beloved. Those who criticize God And there are Christians who do. Let me tell you, there are many Christians who do. Those who criticize God have a low view of His perfect holiness and they forfeit fullness of joy. In 30 years of pastoral ministry, I have never met a Christian with a low view of God's holiness who had fullness of joy. Never. Never. On the contrary, I have met many who have had a low view of God's holiness and also had very little joy in life. If you are unwilling to accept by faith the fact that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, then you will struggle with joy. Let me say that again. If you are unwilling to accept by faith the fact that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, you will struggle with joy. If you build your view of God on your circumstances as a sinner in a fallen and sin-cursed world, then you will struggle with joy. It's interesting to note that Jesus, on the night before His cruel and unjust unfair death, address God as Holy Father and Righteous Father. I don't believe that was just a coincidence. Beloved, it is when we are facing the most difficult and trying circumstances of life that we need to reaffirm that the Father is holy and righteous. 
It is when we are agonizing. It is when we are torn to shreds that we need to reaffirm that the Father is holy and righteous. There are some things that we simply will not understand this side of eternity. If we are so arrogant to believe that we are smarter than God or more loving than God or we have a better way of doing things than God, then we forfeit joy. Our circumstances will try to convince us of the exact opposite of John's statement here in verse 5. Watch that in life. Watch out for it. Our circumstances will try to convince us of the exact opposite of John's statement here in verse 5. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Our circumstances try to convince us that there is darkness in God. The devil tries to destroy our souls by convincing us that there is darkness in God. So like the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to reaffirm that God is holy. We need to reaffirm that God is righteous, especially when we are facing our most trying and difficult tests of life. Beloved, whatever you do, don't build your theology of God on your circumstances as a sinner in a fallen and sin-cursed world. Choose by faith to believe the Word of God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. This could be translated this way. God is light, and in Him is not one bit of darkness. That is foundational for fullness of joy. It is also foundational for fellowship. So John adds verse 6. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Since God is light, it is a false claim when someone claims to be walking in fellowship with God when that person is walking in darkness. I'm sure you know that it is clearly possible for a child of God who has been enlightened by the gospel, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, to make choices that are inconsistent with the light. Surely you know that. Just because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and have been enlightened doesn't guarantee that our actions are always consistent. You and I have done things and said things and made choices in life at times that are inconsistent with our position as children of light. That's why Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The obvious assumption of those two statements is that it is possible for us as children of light to engage in unfruitful works of darkness. The Christian who believes otherwise is deceiving himself. If you think that because you are a Christian, that automatically guarantees that you will always live like you're supposed to, you haven't read the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with exhortations for us to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, which clearly means that it is possible for us to live lives that are not pleasing to the Lord. 
If it were automatic, why say anything about it? Now, it's bad enough when we do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. But it's even worse when we do that and we claim that everything is right between us and the Lord. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. That's what John is addressing here in verse 6. John knew, as does every perceptive pastor, that Christians sometimes feign spirituality while engaging in acts of disobedience. When we are making choices that are not pleasing to the Lord, we have the tendency to practice self-denial to convince ourselves and others that we're doing just fine spiritually. John's wording is even stronger because he says we are lying. We're lying. We're not walking as children of light, to use the words of Ephesians 5.8, or when we are involved with the, the unfruitful works of darkness, to use the words of Ephesians 5.11, then we are not walking in fellowship with God. To claim otherwise is to lie. We are not doing okay spiritually. We're not practicing the truth when we're not walking as children of light. Truth is not merely what we say. It's what we do. It's how we live. So when we claim that we are walking in fellowship with God, but we are making choices consistent with the darkness, we are lying. Maybe we want our Christian friends or family members to think we're more spiritual than we really are. So we make the claim, or we give the impression, that we are walking in fellowship with God. I have seen this so many times through the years in shepherding people, working with people. I have seen Christians who were unquestionably making wrong choices in their lives, wrong choices in their marriages, but they give the impression that they're doing fine, and they're walking in fellowship with God. John says they're lying. They're telling lies. And then he says in verse 7, by way of contrast, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the flip side of the coin. This describes the Christian who is a, is a child of light and also walks in the light. As I've already stated from Ephesians 5, it is possible to be children of light, but not walk as children of light or live as children of light. But believers who make those kinds of inconsistent choices break their fellowship or communion with God. On the other hand, believers who walk in the light experience two benefits that John mentions here. Notice what they are. Two benefits. One, we enjoy fellowship with God. And two, we enjoy the cleansing of our sins. Now, what does John mean by this statement regarding cleansing of sins? I thought all our sins were forgiven the moment we came to faith in Christ. I thought all our sins were washed away by the blood of Christ the very moment we trusted Christ. They were. So what is John talking about here? John is drawing on something Jesus taught Peter and the other disciples on the night before his crucifixion. Go back with me in your mind. We won't turn to it. Go back with me in your mind to John 13, Jesus' final night with his men in the upper room in Jerusalem. You remember what happened? Jesus laid aside his garment, took a towel, picked up a basin of water, and began to wash the disciples' feet. When Jesus came to Peter... 
to wash Peter's feet. Peter refused to let him. He said, Lord, you'll never do that. You'll ne- I'll never let you do that. And Jesus told Peter that if he couldn't wash Peter's feet, they would have no relationship or fellowship. And then Peter responded in a typical Petrine way, then, Lord, give me a bath. That's the way it's going to be, just give me a bath. To which Jesus replied, Peter, once you've had a bath, you only need to get your feet washed. Now, what was Jesus saying there? It's very obvious. Jesus was teaching Peter a spiritual lesson. He was saying this, once you have been saved, once you've been redeemed, once you've been converted, whatever term you want to use, once you become a Christian, once you become a child of God, you don't ever have to get re-saved. But you do need to get your feet cleansed on a regular basis. That's clearly what Jesus was teaching Peter and the other disciples gathered in the room that night, and John never forgot that lesson. He's writing this letter maybe 60 years after that event, but it's still fresh in his mind. He never forgot that lesson. It was riveted into his mind. And I believe it is in the back of his mind as he writes these words at the end of chapter 1. The believer who walks in the light enjoys fellowship with God and also gets his feet washed, spiritually speaking. He gets his feet cleansed of all the sin that he may have picked up as he walked along in life. This is not positional forgiveness that John is describing. That takes place at the moment of salvation, at the moment of faith in Christ. Positionally, we are cleansed. But this is ongoing relational forgiveness related to fellowship and companionship and communion with the Father. So what are the implications of this for Christians who are involved in the unfruitful works of darkness instead of walking in the light? What are the implications? They are twofold. And you know Christians like that. I know Christians like this. And maybe you're one who's like this. You are a child of light in the sense that God has enlightened you and saved you, but you're involved in unfruitful works of darkness. What are the implications? Number one, you are not enjoying fellowship and companionship and communion with the Father or with Jesus Christ. If you claim you are, you are lying, as John said in verse 6. And secondly, your sin is posing a barrier in your relationship with the Lord because you are not getting your feet washed in the sense of your sins being washed to remove the barrier for fellowship. Now again, let me emphasize, it's patently obvious as we work our way through this letter, John is not talking about losing your salvation. He is talking about the fact that you need to get your feet washed in that your sins need to be cleansed so there is no barrier in your fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what John is talking about here in verse 7. This phrase, fellowship with one another, is a reference to the fellowship we have with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the Father and with the Son when we walk in the light. On the other hand, when we participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, we get our feet dirty, and that forms a barrier in our fellowship with the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. In that condition, we don't need a bath. 
We don't need to get re-saved. But we do need to restore our fellowship with God. And that is made possible by virtue of the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice, please, in this verse, John's use of the present tense, cleanses us. Present tense. The blood of Jesus not only cleansed us, past tense, not only cleansed us positionally once and for all in connection with our salvation, it continues to cleanse us relationally as we walk in the light and enjoy fellowship with the Father and with His Son. Let me say it another way as we wind down. Our holy God not only made provision through the death of Christ for us to be saved and enter His family, The blood of Jesus also provides an ongoing cleansing for us to enjoy fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, to say that we are privileged would be a gross understatement. We are blessed beyond words and blessed beyond measure to be in the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed us, past tense, positionally, once and for all at salvation. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us relationally, present tense, ongoing, to remove any barrier for fellowship. We are blessed indeed. Is that you? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ so that you stand holy before a holy God? If not, I urge you this day to let go of self, to let go of holding on to your own righteousness, your own merit, and recognize you need the holiness of Christ. It's available by the grace of God. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes so that you're not distracted by any movement around you, think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning what you have heard from God's word this morning and assess where you stand with God. First of all, first of all, are you holy in God's sight? You're not holy in God's sight in your own merit. You can be holy in God's sight because of the work of Jesus Christ. So if you are not holy in God's sight, You will never see him. You will never be able to stand before him. So you need to repent of your sin. And by faith, you need to receive Jesus Christ. And when you receive Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches you are also receiving his holiness on your spiritual record, in your spiritual bank account. That is the only way you will be able to stand before a thrice holy God. So if you're here today without Jesus Christ... If there's any doubt in your mind, any question in your mind, surrender to Jesus Christ today. Come to know him. Ask him to come into your life and forgive your sins, to take you and begin making you to be the man or the woman he wants you to be. If you are a child of God, are you walking in the light, experiencing the ongoing cleansing, getting your feet washed from all the dirt and the filth we pick up just from walking through this world? Are you enjoying fellowship with the Father, fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ? God has made that provision for us to not only be right with Him positionally, but to be right with Him relationally. 
So, child of God, if there are things in your life that you know are not pleasing to the Lord, maybe no one else knows, no one in your family, none of your friends, but you know, things in your life, maybe it's in your thought life, things in your heart, confess those to the Lord right now. Don't hold on to any barrier in your fellowship with God. Let go of it. Surrender it. Confess it to the Lord. Experience His ongoing relational cleansing and forgiveness. Father, what a rich, rich text of Scripture we have considered this morning. And may we begin in our own minds the way John begins in this letter, by affirming, asserting, by seeking to to grasp, to get a handle on the fact that you are light. You are holy, perfectly holy, pristine holiness. And we are not. We are creatures. We are unholy. And as we get a handle, even just a glimpse of your holiness, like Job, we say, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Like Isaiah, we say, woe is me, for I am falling apart. Like Peter, we say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Give us a fresh glimpse, a fresh understanding of your exalted holiness. And teach us that this is the foundation, the starting point for fullness of joy. So often we want to bypass this and go a different route, go around this. This is the foundation and starting point for fullness of joy. May we as children of light walk in the light, not walk in darkness, and experience precious fellowship with you, Father, with your Son, Jesus, and experience the priceless treasure of the blood of Jesus cleansing us, washing our feet, as it were, so there's no barrier in our fellowship. And in closing, we pray for anyone here in our midst who cannot rightly call you Father, who is not rightly related to your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Spirit draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, so that this would be the day he or she would come to faith in Christ and receive his holiness so that all sin is positionally forgiven for eternity. We pray these things in the precious and priceless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.